welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm James Cohn. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Swamp Flicks. Woo! Swamp Flicks. You didn't, <laughs> didn't do, do it, it right that time. time. What? I know. All right. Not enough practice. Do it uh, over. Do it over. <laughs> <laughs> this is episode 130, by the way. And we are a year into recording these in three separate locations over the internet. We're still having Skype issues every time we start up. Uh, we were just negotiating off mic about like how soon is okay for us to record in person again because we all miss each other. And Brandon was giving me shit for my beard hairs rubbing against the mic. <laughs> At this point, I don't want to master this. I don't want to have enough time to uh, figure all these technical issues out. I, I very much am looking forward to this being over, but we're not quite there yet. I think we've done like a pretty decent job though, like the, the, for the entire year, you know? Yeah. We've been very consistent. I, we haven't yeah. really missed a week, uh, which is yeah. great. And I've just been filling my time with movies and the boredom leading up to the restrictions lifting and everything, everyone being safe to be around each other again. I don't know if y'all have been doing the same, but I've been watching plenty. As always, yes. Well, I went to the movies. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Went to the Elmwood Palace on Sunday with my mom. I miss Elmwood. Yeah, it was it was nice. There was like four people in the theater i didn't feel that unsafe i mean i wore my mask the whole time and oh, it was just nice to be back there yeah elmwood's also massive like it's a huge space oh and it did feel nice to have this opening graphic you know it's like welcome back to the theater <laughs> like yes it's nice to be back come and play with us danny mm. <laughs> oh yeah well we went and saw that anthony hopkins alzheimer's movie the father I cried, I think, like four or five times. It definitely got to me. It was very good. Anthony Hopkins is um, a good actor. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if you've <laughs> I've never heard, heard that before. <laughs> heard about him or his work, but um, I, I really liked the movie. And I think what I liked about it was that it was from the perspective of someone that has dementia. So the whole movie, you're characters are kind of turning into other characters and his like space where he lives is like changing and it just creates this confusion with you as a you know a viewer and so you're kind of put into his mindset and I thought that was really brilliant because usually in like Alzheimer dementia movies it's like kind of more about how it affects other people and you don't really get a sense of what the horror of actually being disoriented and losing your memory and losing your sense of self. And I thought this movie did an excellent job of that. And it was pretty heartbreaking. So it was really good. I know it's up for some Oscars. Deservedly yeah. Actually so. when those were announced, I um, was kind of frustrated. I was like the father, I really was interested in that, but it's not even available. How can it be like nominated by all these people? And then um, it occurred to me that I would Completely ignored the fact that theaters are open and I didn't even look at like local showtimes to see if that was a possibility because um, I'm so used to like looking for everything strictly on streaming right now. See, it was nice to see it in the theater, but I, I will say I've missed going to the theater and viewing things with other people in that communal experience. But it also reminded me like why I kind of have enjoyed watching movies at home because even though there are parts of this movie that were darkly funny i was really surprised at how much people were laughing 
at it. And meanwhile, I thought this is like the most terrifying experience to like, he has this constant thing where he thinks he's lost his watch, but you know, he just misplaced it and stuff like that. Like the audience was laughing at it and I'm just like, Oh my God, that's horrible. This poor man is like so confused. So I don't know. It just kind of reminded me of, it's not all golden. Yeah. Yeah. People sort of suck. And sometimes you have a different viewing experience, but overall it was nice to go to the theater again. Have you seen anything else recently worth watching? I, I watched Aladdin the other day. (laughs) I wanted to hate watch it. Was it the live action? The live action one with Will Smith as the genie. And yeah, I, I totally turned it on to hate watch it. And after Will Smith comes into play and then the middle section is kind of like a romantic comedy. And I like, by the end of it, I was into it. I dug it. I was like, man, I don't know what all the hate was for. That was fine. Yeah. Like I, I yeah, had everyone was act, acting like it was like, oh, this is horrible. It's trash. And yeah, like same thing. Like when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And I'm not turning it off and I'm watching the whole damn thing and I'm loving my life. Yeah. I mean, the, the songs were what the songs were. Yeah. It looked kind of ridiculous. The effects, I guess, weren't that great, but I don't know if you don't judge it too harshly. It's like a fine viewing experience. So I don't know. I I don't hate Aladdin, the live action remake. I think it was pretty good. That is a hot take. I know that's a hot take. (laughs) On a lukewarm movie. (laughs) But yeah, that's really it that I watched over this past weekend. What about you guys? I watched Nomadland. Oh, yeah. I saw that on Hulu. I really wanted to see that. It was really, really good. So yeah, definitely worthy of all the praise that it's been getting. I like had like really deep thoughts after watching it, which like doesn't happen a lot for me. You know, I kind of, <laughs> I don't know. Like sometimes no. I'll, like when I watch movies, I'm just kind of like, yeah, cool. You know, it's enjoyable. It was fun. But so this what one, were your I deep was, thoughts? Like, I think this might be one of my like potential like retirement plans. <laughs> Living as a nomad in a van. See, that's kind of why I didn't want to watch it. It seemed like it was romanticizing something kind of fucked up. That's what one would think. Well, when you say romanticizing something fucked up, you're talking about like the gig economy. Yeah, I'm talking about people who have to like travel around getting like short term jobs at like Amazon warehouses and like barely getting by versus somebody who's like leaving her life behind and like, you know, forging her own way and like making it into like a romantic ideal and not, you know, something people barely scrape by doing. I don't know. It's kind of like a a blend. Like there's actual people who like live in the nomad community that were in this movie um, and just kind of play like fictionalized versions of themselves. But yeah, like, I, I know, like it's one of those things like some people it's like this is how they have to live although some people do choose that way of life like i have two of my closest friends kind of you know sold everything they owned years ago and decided to do that because they were just sick of you know the bullshit of like you know paying rent and you know working your whole life to kind and and these are thoughts i have all the time where it's like do i want to work my entire life for what you know what i mean like to like i'm i'm living and i'm working to literally pay rent and like pay for a car note and it's like well what the hell's is that like a life worth living and it kind of 
like there's this great conversation in the movie uh, where Frances McDormand goes to her sister's house and her like brother-in-law is like a real estate salesman and he's there with all his real estate friends and she's like how do y'all feel like you know basically like selling people this like fake dream of you know just them like putting themselves in debt for the rest of their lives to have something they think is their own home but it's never really going to be theirs because they're just in debt and they're paying it off forever and i'm like oh god <laughs> <laughs> too real yeah and because i always think of like what's my future because like i mean i'm trying to like invest in a 401k but it's hard it's like you need money to like invest so if you don't have enough money to put in to the pot then you're kind of screwed so i'm like well do i want to just like work to like store all of this money i could potentially die before like i even get it and if i do get it the cost of living might be so freaking high that i'll never truly be able to retire so i'm like fuck like Dude. i mean this is like literally something i thought of like just being off the grid badass and i totally know where you're coming from like I, I was talking about that the other day where, like, maybe it'd be nice to just move out to, like, rural Texas and buy a little piece of land and, like, get a trailer yeah. and oh, totally. pay it off 100% and just live. But then you start to think about the logistics of, like, like how would I get groceries? Like, how would I pay property tax or how, you know... I would right. need to make I mean, money like, somehow. You need money, like, even if you want to, like, live in campsites, you know? Yeah. And that's, like, kind of, like, something she goes through in Nomad Land. Like, she'll park her van just to sleep and everyone gives her shit. Um, so that's, like, one of those difficulties. But, yeah, like, it's doable. I mean, you can get, like, a solar shower put on the back of your car with, like, a, a, a ring. And shit in a bucket. I mean, I do it all the time <laughs> when I go trolling with my dad. Like, we sh we shit in a bucket and throw it overboard. And move on with our lives. <laughs> That's half of the experience. It's a part of the <laughs> trolley experience. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that one of the coolest nature experiences that I've had, and you can cut this out, but I feel like I have to share it with y'all, is I was like out in Lake Salvador and they were popping fireworks and I was on my dad's troll boat and I was like just sitting in the dark shitting in this bucket and it was this great moment though where i just felt like really connected with everything around me and i'm like man screw toilets and all these modern things brandon you better I would not watch that, that movie yeah no you can leave it in <laughs> i'm selling the uh adaptation rights to that <laughs> thank you but it was like if like i think like of course like in in no way is my situation or anything like ever gonna be like the, what these people have to deal with in like nomad land like you know i have a support system i'm privileged in that way you know if anything would ever happen to me you know i would have you know family to live with and a lot of these people like don't have that luxury so i get what you're kind of saying brandon like the the main character in this movie played by francis mcdormand who i fucking love this place that she worked at i think it's like a gypsum factory shuts down loses her she loses her job her husband you know died of cancer so she's like by herself and this isn't more so like even though they try to make it like at the end it's like a choice a lifestyle choice that she kind of embraces but it's not like something she totally chose she was kind of forced into it by like all of these horrific circumstances but she kind of learns to love it. Okay. 
I do want to see it because I love Frances McDormand too. She's great. And she, like, I was thinking about that while I was watching this movie. Like, just when you think, like, God, this, like, she's the bomb.com, you watch something else with her in it, and you're like, how did she get better? Like, she just constantly moves, like, uphill with her skills. And I have no idea how she does it. Just freaking awesome. So, yeah, Nomad Land, I, I liked it. Lots of deep thoughts about what the future is going to look like for us. Because, yeah, we ain't retiring. That's going <laughs> to not be in existence. <laughs> Even just the last year, if nothing else is highlighted, just how much bullshit you put up with just to pay bills. Like, because that's all right. we've been doing is going to work and doing nothing else. Yeah. So you just kind of fixate on the ritual of it. And it's miserable. Especially during COVID, you're like, every day I leave to go to work, I'm risking like my life and the life of others for what? <laughs> okay and you're not allowed to do anything else like that's that's the one thing you're allowed to do <laughs> it's horrible horrible but yeah i mean brandon have you been watching anything that's not as dark and depressing and thought-provoking <laughs> well, of course because i mostly watch frivolous bullshit uh <laughs> <laughs> when it, i have I my say it. in it <laughs> I'm, I was making a list the other day of like all the oscar nominations that came out that i haven't seen and a lot of them, I was like, wow, that looks depressing. That looks really fucked up. Like, yeah, these are important, serious movies. And I, you know, have seen so few of them because I watch a lot of gimmicky genre films uh, whenever I have the freedom of choice. Uh, speaking of which, I watched two new movies that are like high concept gimmicky genre movies. I watched one called Crazy Samurai 400 Versus One, which has a great concept. It's not a good movie, but... I think people might be interested in it. It's this samurai movie, as the title would suggest, about this legendary battle that the samurai named Musashi had where he fought 400 swordsmen by himself and killed them all. And the movie's gimmick is that it is only 90 minutes long and 77 of those minutes is one unbroken take, like one long take where oh this God. samurai fights off 400 just sort of like nameless goons with his sword and just like kills them one by one. Um, that sounds awesome. It, it's very boring. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it feels like a, uh, like a backyard movie in some ways. Like it feels very like sub professional and the kills are like exactly the same. Like dozens of people surround this samurai at a time. They take turns lunging at him he kind of like throws his sword back at them and then there's like a spurt of like CGI blood and they just sort of like roll off the camera. And that happens 400 times in the movie. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, by the end, I was just like, oh just drained. I was just like, make it stop. That's a lot like of Like the first five minutes and the last five minutes are like exactly the same. But it's kind of cool, the performance of just the guy being able to swing a sword for 80 minutes like that. He looks so exhausted and like, like, have you ever, like, shoveled dirt for, like, 20 minutes? You just, like, feel so tired and, like, sore for, like, days after? Or at least I do. Just watching him swing this, like, blade for, like, 80 minutes, and he looks so just spent by the end of it. It was like, oh, that's impressive, like, as a physical feat. But there really wasn't much else going on there, unfortunately. But that's the kind of gimmick that even if I told you the movie's bad, it still sounds like <laughs> some people might be interested in watching it anyway. I was going to say... It sounds worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm really big into the gimmicky, like, look, it's one big interrupted shot. You know, we're, we're going to talk about, like, a Brian De Palma film later. 
I just love those sort of like one take, you know, I know they're kind of show offy or whatever, but I I dig it so much. Like that immediately is enough for me to like watch the movie. And honestly, this director, he's like a fight choreographer in a lot of Japanese movies. Um, I don't know if he's directed a lot himself, but it's like a proof of concept kind of film. It's like, well, if I had a bigger budget and more time, this could be amazing. And it even ends with this like epilogue. That's about two minutes long. That like is the kind of like dynamic, exciting, imaginative violence you would want in a film like this. Um, But it's like something that they filmed. It feels like years and years later when they were piecing like this movie together. And it's like, look, look, look what I could do if you gave me enough resources. Um, I could remake this 77 minute shot with like actual cool kills in it um, if I had the money. But beyond that, it's just kind of a novelty. Uh, I did really like this movie called Lucky that just dropped on Shudder, though. Also, another high concept film. It's a home invasion movie, which I generally don't care for. Uh, But it has this supernatural twist to it where this woman's home is invaded night after night by this like serial like slasher guy with like a plastic mask. And it happens every single day of her life. Like uh, it's almost like a time loop movie. It reminded me a lot of smaller stuff like time crimes or triangle, just like really trippy supernatural slasher kind of stuff. And it is pretty much strictly an on the surface metaphor for gender politics and um, is not subtle about that and is very in your face and confrontational with what it's saying, but has like satirical humor to it. And the supernatural scenario and it is so fucking weird and just like the rules of it get weirder and weirder as it loops and loops and loops. So yeah, if you like stuff like Triangle and Time Crimes, which I feel like we've talked about both of those on the show before, definitely worth watching. I think I'm going to make Boomer and Allie watch that for next week's episode. So I'll be digging even further into it with them and, you know, spoiling it and stuff like that. But if you're looking for like a new horror movie that just came out this year, that's on Shudder. It's called Lucky. It's really good. Sold, man. Yeah. Well, you know, I love yeah. Triangle. It's one of my favorite of those kind of movies. So, yeah, I'll definitely check that one out. It's weird, too, because like I feel like Triangle took a long time to build its fan base. Like from when we first saw it till now, it, it has much more cultural cachet now than it used to. And this movie you know, I, it's honestly like the most exciting film I've seen so far this year, as far as like new releases go. And um, it's just been quietly on shutter. Very few of my letterboxed mutuals have reviewed it or seen it, which I find very surprising. Like it's very short, it's very punchy, and it has like a very um, exciting imagination to it. And we have plenty of other high concept genre films coming your way. We're talking exclusively about evil twins today. A bunch of thrillers about um, people who were born on the same day as the person who wants to kill them. <laughs> and um, I think these are all like really over the top in, in their own special ways. Uh, so it, it should be a fun episode. Yeah. Even the ones that kind of fall more on the classy side are pure trash. So. Oh, yeah. Lots of like exquisitely <laughs> made garbage today. Mm-hmm. Which is our sweet spot, I think. That's when we do our best work. <laughs> and all that's coming up to you. Right now. If you think about it, the whole concept of twins sounds like science fiction. Genetic duplicates who share a womb in the same DNA? 
But unlike zombies, cyborgs, and shark tornadoes, twins are a true life example of how crazy biology can be. And the fact that they look alike barely scratches the surface of all the interesting things about them. Here's everything you never knew about nature's own version of human cloning. So what kind of inspired this evil twin topic is uh, this film that I watched a while back called Madhouse. Madhouse is this very wild slasher film that came out in 1981. And it is a film about evil twins. Kind of. The opening of this movie is what I think is one of the most memorable things. It's two twin girls kind of hanging out and playing with each other. But like the entire backdrop is like pitch black. And one of the twins has like a rock and she's like bashing the face in of the other twin child. She's also wearing full makeup, which is like one of the creepiest details of that. Oh, yeah. Shot for some reason. Like fire engine red lipstick on a child who's like smashing another child's face in. Oh, so creepy. But the camera like does not move away from this obvious like mannequin kind of paper mache looking thing where instead of like trying to just get a glimpse to give the audience a gist of what's happening so that they don't see how shitty the effects are. It doesn't shy away from how shitty the effects are. And that's something that happens throughout this whole movie, right? We're forced to look at this like very, very fake <laughs> like movie prop for a good like five minutes, <laughs> which ugh, I love it. It reminded me a lot. And I can't remember the name of that movie, but it was a movie of the month, like like a few years ago, I think that Boomer made us watch where someone's body falls off a cliff. Oh, that was the psychic, another Italian movie. Yes. And like the, it just doesn't go away. Like you watch this body fall for like 10 minutes <laughs> and that made, made me feel the same. But flash forward, it's like modern 1981 times. And there's this young school teacher, Julia, who is being just haunted by these horrific childhood memories of, you know, shit that her horrible twin sister did to her growing up. And she goes to visit her twin sister, who is in a mental institution. And, like, her face is all messed up. So here's... One of the many, many things in this movie that they never clarify <laughs> is, like, her face is supposed to be messed up because of some bizarre disease. But I'm like, I thought that her face was messed up because Julia, like, smashed her face in in the beginning. Did y'all pick up on that? I had a lot of questions <laughs> throughout this film. A, a logical rational questions of what the fuck <laughs> is going on in this movie but like that's like what i thought but that's not what happened which makes it even more confusing she just has a skin disorder it's just a good old-fashioned skin disorder yeah i i think those opening credits were filmed like completely separately from the film and had nothing to do with the plot at all it was just like a creepy intro really what's going on here is like it was just cheaper for them not to have to green screen the two women like green screen the actress twice in the frame like just get someone who doesn't even look like her and say that's your twin she's just disfigured uh that but way you save a lot of money is <laughs> yeah. like they put like a stocking over her face with like <laughs> a little bit of glue yeah it's 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 so funny so, some of the other movies we're going to talk about like there's like a technical side to it like how did they pull this off how did they get 
the same actor to play two different characters in the same shot. And sometimes it's done really well. Sometimes you can see the line, you know, where the two shots like come together. And this one, they like just don't even bother. <laughs> it's a movie about twins where the twins do not look alike, which is like a really weird. Hook. That was the first like major question I had. These are twins that don't look alike. Yeah. So the twins' birthday is coming up, and Mary escapes from the mental institution, and like slowly, like people in Julia's life start to like die by a rottweiler or a rottweiler puppet depending on the shot well second question (laughs) where did the rottweiler come from i guess mary found him because mary used to taunt julia with like a dog when they were younger right so the the way they present in the movie is her evil sister used to taunt her with the rottweiler all these years later she's in an insane asylum she escapes (laughs) and somehow has a Rottweiler. Now, where in the hell? She must have gone to a shelter. They don't show and it. Picked she, one up. There's just a dog. Like, where the hell did you get this dog from? See, that's the kind of thing that I think is great. Like, why explain it? Like, it really makes no sense. And, you know, either she has like an immortal dog that will just never die. <laughs> and it's just been waiting outside of the hospital for her to be released as an adult. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. have as much of a problem with that but again it's like these sort of questions kept coming up to oh me yeah over and over when i'm watching the movie's like, a mess logically and there's so much more yeah, <laughs> there's so many going, more please. unanswered questions but yeah like I, the dogs stuff like ba- a lot of the violence in this movie is like from this rottweiler puppet and it's i'm not a fan of like animal violence in movies like this it doesn't like sit well with me because I love animals, but like no animals were harmed during this movie. Obviously it was a puppet, but yeah, everyone starts to kind of die. <laughs> Julia's life and Julia and Mary have this like creepy uncle James. Oh God. Okay? And uncle James is a priest and there's just something that is like something very pervy wrong with him. But, like, the biggest thing for me in this movie is, like, we never really find out what Uncle James's deal is. Because he ends up being, like, a freaking psychopath, right? You know, f- fast forward, Uncle James gets all the dead bodies of these people that are important to Mary, props them all up on the roof of her apartment complex, blindfolds Mary like it's her surprise birthday party, no, I'm sorry, Mary. I'm saying Julia. See, I'm getting the twins confused. Julia. And then is like, here's your birthday. And like, Mary is there too. So like, at first you think like, oh, is like Uncle James like trying to get back at Julia for something? Is he using Mary to like taunt Julia and like potentially kill her? But then like he kills Mary? It's also weird. Like the reason that Mary used to torment Julia on their birthday. And the whole reason they're at odds is because the evil twin did not want to share her birthday. That's her whole like motivation as a killer and a tormentor of her sister. So it's really like odd that um, James's plot was to make her share a birthday party with her sister once more. (laughs) Like it does not jive with what she wants. 
it's and then so the whole strange. thing falls apart yeah and like the that whole part where like you know uncle james is getting ready for the birthday party he like has um julia's landlady help him like bring in a what liz later to be found out as like a dead body in a bag into the apartment and then like he chases her like they have like this fun cat and mouse chase that lasts a really long time and the whole like him he like kind of pops up very creepily throughout this whole apartment building and this lady is just like putting herself in a trap <laughs> she she's so inept at hiding is one thing she's i noticed she's really bad at like, it like there's one like one part where she gets into this apartment and there's like this barren room with one little bed in the middle of it with one sheet on top and she like hides <laughs> under the bed but it's so obvious like that's the worst hiding spot like you could possibly pick <laughs> it's also worth noting that uncle james is adorable as he's chasing her down he's like kind of cute and like casual about the whole ordeal yeah he's like, he's like singing songs singing and making jokes and but that, i like uncle james and he's like, why is everybody so afraid of dying? It's not that bad. Like, he's just like in a good mood. <laughs> like, his character is interesting because he's like a priest. So if he does believe in the afterlife, there's an interesting story there where like, yeah, he would think that he's like doing people a favor by killing them so they can be closer to God. And you know, they could have. That is like the one thing I, of all things that this movie like just didn't explain, I would have wanted more uncle James background. More uncle James. T- totally. I mean, it's clear as soon as you see him, like, Oh, that guy's a creep and in on it. Like, it's not like a mystery <laughs> who who's working with her, you know? Yeah. He's got that face. Anytime there's like a man with like cherub cheeks like that. <laughs> and he's a priest in a movie like madhouse. He's obviously crazy. But also does something you said, earlier Brittany, about like all these people keep dying around her like she doesn't actually know that the people are being killed around her she just thinks they're like disappearing well except for that kid well except okay well that's a whole nother (laughs) thing what in the hell kind of relationship did they have together like a mentor oh bullshit wait she takes this kid (laughs) to church just like random church on a sunday and we don't ever see his mom or dad. Well, we see him after he's dead. They show up. <laughs> They're pretty sad right. about it. Well, we don't like get a sense of like, <laughs> are they really that close where she could just take him to church on a Sunday? He does write love letters every day. Ugh, yeah, it's that it was a little creepy, whatever was going on. I mean, and he's also deaf and she's also a teacher for like deaf kids. So like I kind of took it as like, I mean, maybe like they vibed on that level. Well, there's a creepy line in the beginning. Doesn't her like fellow teacher say something about like, oh, when he becomes 18, uh, let me know. Yeah. I'm like, what? There's like, uh, yeah. there's a little strange vibe going on is all I'm saying. And I you know what? I still almost cried uh, after that kid died. And then all the other deaf kids in his class were processing their grief by remembering the things that they like about him. Uh, that scene was like genuinely emotionally affecting to me, which was is it? shocking yeah. in a film this messy. I actually laughed hysterically during <laughs> that scene. James, you monster. I'm so no, sorry. It's, it's both. I think both reactions are totally appropriate. I, I am not going to try to imitate the vocalizations of a deaf Please child. Don't. Please don't. I Please do not. It's offensive. But when the one kid says like, he dead, I lost it, dude. I, <laughs> 
I don't know, man. Like right after that, the kids are like, we like that kid because of this. We liked doing this with him. He enjoyed these things. Like for some reason that was like actually choked me up when I did not. No, no, that, that was good. But the initial, like he did, he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) I actually rewinded it. I watched that scene three times because I thought it was very funny. Oh my God. I know. You're so fucked up. I like it. (laughs) I admire this. So the, that's so that whole thing sasha the little sasha boy and his death i read that this movie made like the uk's video nasty list Mm. of just like you know like movies that were coming out in the uk that just kind of were like forbidden in a way and i'm like what is it about this movie and i'm like is it the dog violence and then i'm like i think it's like the sasha thing um it's pretty cruel it is. Even though you don't see it happening, it's still very unsettling and not something that was common in nineteen early 1980s horror movies. But that, that bothers me a little bit because, like, that is a huge taboo, like right. killing a child in a film. Which, I mean, kids can get killed. Kids get killed all the time. <laughs> but, like, if you're going to make it on the video nasties list, like, at least show me the kid's throat getting eaten oh. by the dog like what is James. it james i don't i don't care it's a it's a film i'm just saying like you wanted this like little innocent deaf child to get mauled you there. wanted to like see him being mauled go by there if it's gonna get an nc-17 rating and it's not for sex either like usually they won't give an nc-17 for violence it's usually yeah sexual content so if they're going to give it to you for violence, like why chicken out on that? That is like the most fucked oh up scene in yeah. the movie. Like go there, dude. <laughs> Show me this kid getting mauled by a dog. I don't know. I'm a bad person. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, just, I just don't know how to respond to that yet. I thought it was pretty effective without that insert. Um. <laughs> oh, but the dog's head getting drilled in. Like didn't see that you? I didn't like, like that, that affected that affected me more than if I would have saw the kid getting mauled by you're the right. dog. Like so, if, if I could do turn one, in the, other. the Rottweiler getting drilled and trade that in for like Sasha getting mauled, I would do it. I'm saying I want both. <laughs> Don't give me one and not the other. Like give me I both. Can't, I can't. But um, so this director, Ovidio Asonitus, he like also directed that movie the visitor and he did piranha 2 as well so this guy is just really good with like garbage horror and sci-fi i really like the visitor that movie is wild it is so this this guy has some ganked up stuff i mean to his his credit filmography (laughs) this is obviously a really low budget but i think he yeah it doesn't actually feel as low budget as it probably was the music was great and then also, like, the acting wasn't the worst. It wasn't bad. Yeah, acting not bad. The cinematography was fine, except there was one shot where you could see the camera crew in the mirror or in the glass <laughs> or whatever. I don't know if y'all caught that, but that that's... I didn't. Here nor did, whatever. It's Not fine. shocked, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only, like, kind of bad acting, I would say, would be Mary and how she was just yelling all the time <laughs> when she talked. But that was it. And that was more so just I found her voice to be obnoxious. But I really like Julia. 
Um, and this was Trish Everly, the actress who played Julia. It was her both her first and last movie. So her entire career is wrapped up in Madhouse. And I love that about her. <laughs> I will say when Julia visits Mary in the hospital um, and they have their like kind of intimate moment together, I thought Mary's delivery of I'll make it hurt. I'll make you hurt was like genuinely scary. Like that, I'll make that, you suffer. I don't know. There's something about that. that I was like, oh, God, it's like, I don't know. I can feel like a knife going into my skin every time she talks. And I think that has to also deal with like the setting she was in at that hospital. It looked like they were like doing reconstruction on like an old house. Mm. Like there were just like those like tarps laid yeah. out all over the place. And you can't and you don't really see her face as much as you do towards the end. So I think the mystery of her probably helps with that. But like at the damn birthday party at the end, I'm like, God, Mary, shut up. (laughs) And then also something strange at the birthday party amongst all the insanity is, you know, when uncle James like stabs Mary and she falls into Julia's lap, Julia like just starts screaming like a maniac but I'm like, why didn't you do that when you saw all the, your dead friends at the table <laughs> in the first place? I think what's happening there is she is specifically doing the final girl thing from the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, you know, that final scene in the pickup truck where she just starts screaming and like going out of her mind and like she's covered in blood, um, which is basically the exact end of Texas Chainsaw and th- that birthday party in general is a lot like the family dinner table scenes in that movie. And in a larger scope, this movie feels like a ripoff of a bunch of different American slasher movies all at the same time. That's probably why it didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like four or five different movies like Frankenstein together, um, especially Halloween. Like, the escaped mental patient returning home finishing like childhood business with the face disfiguring or face mask yeah and then there's like the countdown to the birthday um which is going to be the big showdown day and that's exactly like on halloween there's like you know two more days to halloween title cards that intersperse the thing though is that this italian director you know is working with all these american slasher tropes but the movie still feels like giallo like it is not a movie where the story or the logic of it or the investigation or even the character work really matters at all. It's all about the images and how fucking right. cool each setup can look. Like neon red blood. Yeah, or even that um that you know hallway of tarps you were just talking about in the hospital where she like runs away from the bed scared. It just looks extremely cool. And I think on that level the movie really works for me like we were just talking about last episode the uh, we did together the um, talking cat movies. Uh, <laughs> I was saying to James, you know, like we used to watch all of these like so bad they're good movies, and we don't really do that anymore. And I think that's like a half truth. I think I don't watch those movies to laugh at how bad they are anymore. I I watch quote unquote bad movies because they're sort of unregulated, like. There's no quality control on them, making sure they're not going over the top and like in wild directions. And I think this is a great example of the kinds of like bad movie that I'm like looking for and stuff. Like this movie's so stylistically over the top and so violent and so just like under 
regulated. Like it feels like genuinely dangerous and just off the rails at all times. Um, and I just had a ton of fun with it the whole time. I, I thought I thought it was actually very good. I'm surprised good. we're all like kind of dogpiling on it being a piece of shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> even though you know, like obviously the the dog puppets and you know some of the like character moments are like very goofy. But I think that's just all part of the fun. I mean, I was like extremely entertained. I, I think it's easy to, like you said, dogpile on. The story makes no sense. This Rottweiler puppet is very bad. Yeah. But it is. Yeah. I, I mean, God, this is like the fourth time that I see it. And will I watch <laughs> it again? Probably so. This is a very Britney movie. <laughs> it is. But yeah, it's a good movie. It's like, it's, it's cheesy, but also like you were saying, Brandon, like it has like these really cool scenes and it's genuinely creepy. Um, even though everything looks pretty silly. And I mean, rest in peace, Sasha. <laughs> James will not let him rest. James wants no. him exhumed and killed again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't get his true comeuppance because I didn't get to see it. <laughs> but I will, I will say that the scene with the other deaf kids mourning his loss was uh, one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. So. <laughs> I love how like James is rewinding it and laughing just like um, I'm, I'm picturing you doing that like on, you know, Death Becomes Her where she's rewinding Madeline being strangled and laughing while Brandon's like crying. And <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't I don't know where my like emotions are sometimes where I'll like cry like a baby in that Anthony Hopkins Alzheimer movie mm-hmm. and then like laugh hysterically. At- yeah. Deaf children mourning their classmates. Grieving. So, I, I mean, know. we're all here to be honest. So thank you for your honesty. I did. I did enjoy it though. It was a lot of fun. Good. Conjoined twins called Siamese challenge life at their first breath. Some twins have been separated and lead normal lives. Others never can. Sisters. They were once one in body and perhaps one in mind. Danielle and Dominique. One loving, one hating, one innocent, the other... Thinking of, like, good evil twin movies... One that always kind of comes to mind, other than Madhouse, is the 1964 film Dead Ringer. And this is like in that time of like, you know, Betty Davis is kind of big old psycho Betty comeback. And I would say it's probably like one of the classiest (laughs) movies we've watched today. And perhaps like the classiest evil twin movie in existence. So that's my opinion. It's funny, like, saying it's a psycho bitty, too, because, like, technically she's only 40 years old as both of these characters in the movie, but she's obviously much older to the eye. And it's also, like, (laughs) after Baby Jane, so, like, anything she does after Baby Jane is going to be lumped in with that genre. So I definitely think it qualifies, but it's just kind of a funny label to slap on this. So um, Betty Davis plays um, a pair of twins, and this is actually the second time that she does this. What? Yeah, there's a movie called The Stolen Life that she uh, played in when she was way younger. I think this was probably like in the late 30s. 
And it's not as violent <laughs> as Dead Ringer. But yeah, this is her second, like, kind of mysterious twin movie where she plays twins. So she's a pro at this point. Betty Davis plays both the role of Margaret and Edith. So, you know, Margaret and Edith are these estranged twin sisters. And they kind of reconnect after not seeing each other for about 20 years at the funeral of Margaret's husband. So Margaret is this like hoity-toity wealthy like Beverly Hills socialite that married this guy named Frank and they have this big mansion and they travel the world and all this great stuff. While Edith is kind of the sister who's living in poverty in a way like she's she owns her own cocktail lounge in los angeles but she's like behind on the rent she has a small apartment which i still think looks fabulous i mean it looks better than what i'm living in right now but they have these two totally different lives and it turns out that margaret the rich sister her husband was once edith's lover like back in the day edith was in a romantic relationship with frank who's the guy that's dead and frank has an affair on edith with her twin sister margaret and margaret fakes a pregnancy to then force frank to marry her and then she gets this life of luxury while edith loses like someone that she was truly in love with and doesn't get the life that she feels should have been hers. So she has that resentment. And it's so funny how the character of Edith, she's supposed to be like the, the I guess, the kinder sister, while Margaret's supposed to be like this, you know, the rich bitch. But I don't know if it's like, like you were saying earlier, Brandon, like the psycho bitty stamp that she kind of carried. She's so evil <laughs> as Edith. See, I thought that quite the opposite here. I thought this was like an interesting flip of what we were normally doing with these other movies where like the evil twin in this one to me is the rich one who really? lords it over her sister. You see, I thought Edith was just as bad. <laughs> like I don't know, like the, I don't want your damn buddy kind oh, of man, yelling. That line is so good. <laughs> her rich sister's <laughs> like, how much would it take to like get you back on your feet? And uh, the poor one slaps the pocketbook out of her hand. She goes, you haven't got that much. That is oh great my God, drag you, you performance. You just like her. <laughs> <laughs> you sounded just like Betty Davis in her smoker's voice. Uh, that is the best moment in this movie. But it's I, a good I, what one. I'm saying is like the movie's like subversive, I think, for making you root for the murderer who you would think would be oh, the evil one. You root for her totally. But I think it's so funny where like. They're like, you can't be Edith. Edith wanted her to fly. And I'm like, Edith is also a little nutty as well, dude. <laughs> like, she snapped. Don't... Yeah. <laughs> she snapped. <laughs> yeah, I think they're both like kind of from the same cloth. And when she's pushed into a corner, they're both capable of heinous things. But I, I do think the movie works in that you do still root for her. Right. You know, even though she does this horrible thing, she's trying to cover it up. So... The day of the funeral where this film starts, it's Frank's funeral, right? Edith's lover, Margaret's husband. It just so happens to be their birthday as well. So here's the birthday theme. I mean, twin birthday, obviously something wild is going to happen. So like Edith kind of premeditates Margaret's murder. (laughs) She's like, 
I'm going to lure her to my house on top of my little cocktail bar and I'm going to kill her. I'm going to make it look like she committed suicide and that she's me. And I'm going to like take her identity and like live the lifestyle that should have been mine in the first place. And that's exactly what she does. She invites Margaret over and Margaret is still in her morning wear. So like her whole face is covered in this black veil. So you can't really see like she's coming through this like cocktail bar going upstairs. So it's like no one really knows that that's her twin sister. They also save money on having to split screen them more than just a few shots. <laughs> True. I thought every everything about that scene is so smart, though. <sighs> like, usually in these sort of like, oh, I did a crime and now I have to cover it up. You see like kind of little holes in like their logic or whatever. But like everything she did to oh yeah commit this like makes perfect sense i know especially like in that moment where she's taking the watch that like her policeman boyfriend who looks just like john c Riley, gave her in a moment i was like is she gonna keep the watch and she's gonna screw everything up and she's like fuck no like new life goodbye let me put the watch on her was <laughs> it like hands. when she kept the lights off and then she decided to turn them on because obviously mm-hmm. that would make more sense if someone had committed suicide. Like right. she makes these little decisions where I'm like, oh, wow, that was very smart. But then she gets messy when she goes back to the Beverly Hills mansion. Yeah, and that's like the fun of the second half of the movie is it would be so difficult to even, like in this situation, try to pretend like you were somebody else because their personalities right. are like very different from what we see in the beginning. Yeah, it's like she kind of, and I guess it was probably more, even though like she premeditated the murder, I think the decision to kill her sister was pretty quick because she didn't think like, oh, I should probably figure out the layout of her house so I don't look lost when I go there. I should probably look for important things. And she didn't think of that. So she goes to the mansion, she starts smoking, and they're like, well, Margaret never smoked. Why are you smoking all of a sudden? Also, the dog doesn't hate her guts. I know, tell. Duke. A, I know, which is yeah. A great that dog. she's not a total asshole. The cutest dog. It's a beautiful dog. Obsessed with him. Um, I'm glad he didn't die. Glad he didn't get a drill in the head. I know. <laughs> I know. It's like, ugh. It leaves you feeling a little better on the animal side of things after you watch this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like she, and she like, doesn't know where the living room is in the damn house. And she doesn't know the code to the safe, like all these little things, like that's where everything starts to get like really sloppy. And it's sort of like, there's this element of karma that hits her where it soon revealed that Margaret actually was having an affair with this guy and she conspired with him to kill her husband, Frank. So then the murder gets traced back to Margaret, who is actually Edith. And it's like, I mean, at the end of the day, Edith gets, you know, justice for murdering somebody, even though it's not the person she murdered. And the twist of the knife is if she had just waited one more day, the will would have from the dead husband would have given her money enough to save 50 grand. Wasn't it like, I don't know when I watch like some older films, I don't expect a twist to like get me, you know? Uh-huh. And like this one, looking back on it was a very obvious twist that there would have to be some way for her to get her comeuppance and the, the timing of it with her sister murdering her husband. And if she, if she would have waited a day, like 
I thought that actually worked extremely well to where like when that twist happened, I'm like, oh shit, like I genuinely am taken aback. Like that's a good twist. And that was like a big surprise for me. It made it a little more on the sad side because it's like oh, Frank really did give a shit. I guess it was like back in the day where like divorce wasn't a thing. I'm also like wondering when you're saying this is like a classier movie than some of the other ones we're watching. And I don't disagree with you, but I'm trying to like pinpoint exactly what it is. <laughs> Let's compare it to Mad. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, compared to Madhouse, all of these movies I'm are like <laughs> very classy. <laughs> I think with with this film, like what really stuck out to me was it seemed like it was the clearest like they knew what story they were trying to tell and they mm-hmm. told it very well but there was no flashiness like i feel like the director took a back seat kind of and just went strictly by the script there were no like crazy shots or any really experimentation mm-hmm. with I don't know, lighting or Anything like yeah. that. It was just, the script is awesome. It feels like a classic, like, thriller. I would say that there's flashiness in Betty Davis's performance. Like, Yeah, that's, that's the razzle-dazzle. Like, but the, the director seemed like, Davis's performance is it. We have this right. good story. She's going to run the show. It's all about her. Just put the camera on her, and we'll be good. And I think it actually, that was a smart way to go. It's a smartly well-done movie that I don't think takes many risks at all. Yeah, this isn't um, Joan Crawford in Straight Jacket, where like every scene is just <laughs> Dodd to 11 insanity. It's not that psycho bitty, which I love that movie even more than this one, to be honest. But um, <laughs> this one's like a lot more restrained and like kind of like a late period noir is what how I would, I would describe it yeah. genre-wise. And those are, you know... Noir in general, we kind of think of as being classy in retrospect, but a lot of those were just kind of like low budget genre films that happened to be, you know, well lit and, you know, well performed and sexy at the time. So I don't know. It's it's funny, like just kind of how over time this does feel like a classier thriller when really it, w- it was a low budget genre picture with an over the top performer at its center um, when it was released. And, you know, one of the payoffs is watching her point a gun at a double of herself on the screen like they might skimp on split screening her with herself as much as they can but they cannot do it in that scene where she like points the gun at her own head like we need to see that image and it's great that whole scene was like so chilling where she's like facing the other way and there's this like little pistol like just inching toward her skull Ugh. and i would think if um dead ringer is like the classiest one of this group i think dead ringers from 1988 uh, is a good runner up. Like it feels a little more restrained than you would think it would be uh, because it is a David Cronenberg film. And it's apparently one of the like greatest Canadian films of all time. (laughs) I don't necessarily think that's off. Uh, I don't know, man. It's not one of my personal favorite Cronenberg films, but a lot of people that I respect think it's his best. Uh, but it is a little more restrained than something like The Fly or Videodrome or Existence. Like, there is one nightmare sequence with the traditional Cronenberg mutant flesh connecting the two twins in the film via that, like, pulsating tumor <laughs> effects that you, he loves putting in his movies. Like, you only get one flash of that Cronenberg. For the most part, it's more like late period, like, 
Crash or Cosmopolis, like kind of heady, cold Cronenberg, which I guess in the 80s would have been a, a little more out of character for him. Um, this is him doing like an 80s sex uh, erotic thriller, which I find interesting. It's about two gynecologists who are twins. Um, they're based on a real set of brothers that someone wrote a novel about after their death. They were basically writing their own prescriptions, became addicted, uh, and their practice was like allowed to go off the rails for like way too long because they were respected in their field. Um, so Cronenberg and the novelist who um, wrote the source material, they took that like nugget of like a real life fact and made this like really weird erotic psychological thriller out of it. Um, basically the setup is that Jeremy Irons is playing both of the twins. Um, one of them is very shy and can't talk to women the other is extremely confident and kind of a womanizer and all of their sexual history is shared. Like the womanizer character is really good at getting people to go to bed, but loses interest in them immediately. So he passes them on to his, you know, meeker brother who, you know, is a lot more gentle and loving and like actually connects with their, um, their one night stands a little more deeply until he falls in love with an actress and because this is Cronenberg, there's a little bit of psychological play in the fact that like this movie actress is dating these two twins. Um, at first, she doesn't know that she's dating brothers. She thinks that she's only seeing one of them. They're kind of like WWE, like twin magicking her. But there's like a parallel there where like they are also actors. They're playing each other. Like he has to pretend to be the confident brother sometimes and vice versa to pull off this ruse. And it falls apart when the actor gets a job in a different city. The brothers are left alone. And the one that is actually in love with her turns to pills and then like heroin in his like depression and in her absence and starts to find other women's bodies horrifying. Like while he's operating on them, he starts to see them as hideous mutants that need to be corrected. And he, um, commissions these gynecological tools for monstrous women um, from a local artist who like makes metalworks. Um, and there's these like really terrifying art objects that like sh you imagine them being inside of your body and you just wince. Like I, I think if this movie does anything interesting with Cronenberg's usual like body horror, it's that he's not horrified by the outside of the body in this movie. It's like by the inside, there's a lot of like jokes about inner beauty contests and like, fish who have sex without touching and like just weird humor about like what goes on on the inside of the body and how it that is monstrous and just as upsetting as like the outward mutations that are usually in his movies and because the two brothers are committed to having the same experiences as, as each other throughout their entire lives um the other one starts doing heroin and uh, other narcotics to get on his like weaker brother's wavelength and then the evil twin and the good twin by the end of the film are both just groveling messes. Like they're barely functioning in any way. Their practice falls apart and they share a really sad piece of birthday cake uh, at the end of the film and just sort of like die in each other's arms as if they are Siamese twins who were separated and it didn't work is kind of like the parallel that the movie pulls there. I hope that was a succinct it was. Recap of a very sprawling film. Hats off to <laughs> Better you, Better than I could have done. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, there's pro probably still a lot more to talk about 
Honestly, when we were thinking about doing this genre of like evil twin movies, my first thought was Double Lover, which is like one of my favorite movies of the past 10 years and is a much trashier like version of this film, especially when it comes to the idea of like twin cest. Like the movie finds the idea of like the twins making out very erotic. But otherwise, like the movies are very similar and I kind of prefer the version of this story that's done in Double Lover. Um, I realize that's probably not a very popular opinion, but I still think this movie is interesting and worthwhile, especially for um, Jeremy Irons' performance as the two twins. I think he's like exceptionally good at differentiating the good one and the evil one more so than any other movie we'll talk about in this episode. Yeah, it's surprising how easy it is to follow which one is Beverly and what's his other... But Elliot, Elliot, like it, it's not confusing at all, and it should be. But like Jeremy Irons is a badass actor, and he it, sometimes it's like very subtle. But I feel like nine times out of ten, you know which brother you're dealing with in mm-hmm. a given scene, yeah. which is pretty amazing for an actor to pull that off, especially when they're playing each other. Like you can tell when the weaker one is imitating the stronger one. Cause like his heart's not really in it. Uh, and yeah. Like, there's an intensity missing from his eyes. Yeah. Even when they're not talking. Well, what do y'all think about this movie? I know it's like, it's not one of my favorite Cronenberg films, but it is good. Like, I think it's a very well staged film and I like it more than his more recent ones where it, get, it gets even colder and less grotesque. I think it still has some of the early nastiness. It's very like, I found it to be just very unsettling. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like it just left me feeling icky. Like all like the evil twin stuff, the weird gynecology stuff. (laughs) Like it just, it makes for a very, very uncomfortable viewing experience. But I mean, an enjoyable, uncomfortable one. I mean, I, I think I pretty much agree with you, Brittany, is that I found it really interesting. I love like, yeah, how icky it was and it really made you feel uncomfortable. And I thought the psychology of the twins and they're like, yeah, and how the film really delves into like dependency, dependency on sex or on drugs or on someone you love, like a twin, like all that was very good. I think ultimately what, made me draw back from the film a little bit was how like truly icky these twins are and what they're doing with the whole like screwing a girl that you met through a gynecological exam and then you give her off to your brother. Right. Like a gynecologist like sleeping with a patient is already like insane. But then like but handing the them off. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And like Ugh. I think it would have wouldn't have been as bad if it was a nice tight little film, but this is like an almost two hour thing where it's like I gotta hang out with these creeps. I mean, they're just creeps for like almost <laughs> two hours. Friends. Yeah, the movie's not condoning it though, right? We're not saying no. that the depiction no, is not. condoning it. Okay, no, but they're not like antiheroes in that like there's no rooting for these guys. It's literally like oh my god, these guys are creepy and depraved and let's see like how deep they go into this black hole of drug addiction and despair and like that for at least for me was like not necessarily a fun viewing experience even if it was interesting 
but it is like extremely well made. So I, you know, I'm yeah. a little conflicted about it. I loved like Beverly's spiral into insanity so much, especially when he like finds like the artist to make his like fucking horror movie instruments. <laughs> like that part to me, like whenever he like went and he's like, this is what I want done. I'm like, Oh, he is not doing this. You know what I mean? I was like, Oh hell no. And then like when they actually like, you know, become like an actual thing that he's, and then he like tries to use them on that patient. Oh God. Like, oh my God. Like I was screaming. That scene where he tries to use on the patient. And they're dressed like the mask of red death. Right. I, <laughs> no, that, that scene is so unsettling. Ugh. And apparently part of that scene is true. The part where he like lunges across the table to grab the uh, gas from his like anesthetized patient. Apparently, like that, one of the doctors tried to do that mid-surgery. Oh my god! To take like a whiff of whatever gas they used to keep the patient under um, was one of like the big things that got them in trouble and like sort of unraveled their practice in real life. But you know, the movie also goes so far off the rails that like I'm sure the parallels between the real story and what's on the screen is like not even close because <laughs> it's not very interested in that. Well, I do think the movie like it builds up a lot of steam for me with the relationship between Beverly and. What's the actress's name? I can't remember. Uh, Any anyway, like their relationship, and then his longing for her when she goes off to shoot this movie, and then she kind of goes to the background, and we don't see her for like forty minutes of the film while he's going deep into drug addiction, and like I really found her character almost as interesting as the twins and how she can kind of see through their bullshit. And I wish narratively, like, she would have been more of a focal point instead of kind of being uh, in the background. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I think the movie, when it is about erotic obsession, is a lot more compelling than when it's about drug addiction. The last 30 minutes where they're really devolving and just, like, drooling drug addicts, I, I agree. I kind of lose steam for me in that back half. That might be why I'm more into Double Lover because that no, that one never lets off the gas on the sexual mania. It just like constantly goes after like erotic mayhem the whole time it's going. And to that point too, it's like they sort of tease at this, but like there is a, like a homosexuality angle with the two brothers. Oh, it's so incest. Yeah, and she like even brings <laughs> it out like into specialty. the open. But there's that scene where they're both dancing with the same girl and they're kind of touching each other and like i thought that was a really great scene and that was getting almost to the point of like a double lover scenario and like i kind of wished like you said it went more into the the like sexual realm instead of the drug addiction stuff which we've kind of seen a million yeah. times i would have loved to seen like jeremy arns fuck himself fuck himself right <laughs> isn't that what we want <laughs> yes I just couldn't justify uh, talking about Double Lover on the show a, a third time. Like, I've brought it up so many times on this exact podcast that I couldn't justify it. <laughs> but, but you know, it's a good movie. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's always justified anytime you want to throw it in. And I, I think this movie's good. I, I, I think Crash, in particular, does a better job of, like, bridging the early half of Cronenberg's career to, like, what he does now. I feel like Crash, like, gets away with not going full violence and full like hideous mutation and like in your face with the practical effects, but it's still um, 
commits to like the erotic horrors of its premise in a lot more like sensual and like fully committed way. But I still think this movie's really good. Uh, it's just like a director who's done better work. Um, so it's kind of hard not to compare it to like your favorites. I agree. As a huge fan of Cronenberg, like this is to me probably more like mid tier Cronenberg, which still means it's a very good movie. I mean, from Jeremy Irons to like the production design, like how cold and sterile everything looks from their their office to their apartment. And the score is great. Like, yeah, it, it's a very, very, very good movie. But for Cronenberg, it's, to me, like, not his best. Well, you also picked a movie from a, um overachieving, stylistically over-the-top auteur to talk about today. Well, and I, I love this episode we're doing because we did get to talk about Cronenberg, who is one of my favorites. And we're also going to get to talk about De Palma. Brian De Palma, who is another one of my favorite directors. So keeping with the theme, Sisters, which I think from what I've been reading is maybe his first foray into slasher or like thriller genre films. I think before that he had kind of dabbled in some other like satirical stuff. And I, I think he had like middling success, but Sisters from 1972 is like kind of his big jumping off point to a lot of what he would do in the future. And arguably his best movie, (laughs) in my opinion. It's uh, one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites, too. I think Blowout and maybe one or two more higher on my list, but that's kind of personal taste. But anyway, of course, the film revolves around twins. It's starts out in this really cool way where this is a theme that comes up a lot with the Palma films is like the voyeurism. And it starts out with this guy who it turns out is on this candid camera kind of show. And he's spying on um, a woman who is changing in the shower and she's blind. And it's like, Oh, will he or won't he look at her naked? And it gets revealed. It's like a big game show. And he ends up meeting this woman who is uh, played by Margot Kidder after the show. And they decide to go out for drinks and they go back to her apartment. They really hit it off. And this is a theme that comes up a lot. He finds out it's her birthday the next day. So he goes and like gets her a cake and he goes, brings it back to her, to her apartment. And he is violently stabbed by her twin. Well, He comes over, she's having a conversation with someone, she says her sister came by, and then he gets murdered by her evil twin sister, and this is all being observed by this news reporter lady across the street who sees the whole thing, reports it to the cops, and then there's like this cover-up. And the cops uh, don't want to investigate because the reporter has a habit of writing articles about how they're racist pigs. <laughs> so they're like very reluctant to look into the murder. Right. And there there's this beautiful split screen scene where we're getting her perspective, watching the murder, reporting it to the cops, talking to the cops. Meanwhile, Margot Kidder and what we think is her ex-husband who helps her clean up her sister's mess of murdering this guy. And they stuff 
his body into a sofa bed. And it's such a tense, great scene because, you know, we're seeing them clean it up. We see the cops coming. We see how the cops are distracted by the reporter about just a bunch of bullshit. Like they obviously don't believe her. They have it out for her and they're wasting time. And essentially the one sister covers up the crime of the other. And the rest of the film is this reporter character who is trying to get at the truth of this murder. I think we have to spoil what happens to really get into yeah. it. Right, I'm trying not yeah. to like spoil it, but I think you're right. We have to. Do you you want to spoil it, Brandon? So she tracks the <laughs> um, good sister back to a mental institution where um, she keeps seeing this like same creep who's been hanging around the, the good sister the whole movie. Um, he says it's her ex-husband, but um, obviously something else is going on. Uh, and it turns out that he's like this doctor, kind of like this mad scientist doctor, this mental institution. And he puts the reporter under hypnosis and puts her in the mentality of the twin sister, like of the evil twin. And they go under hypnosis and the movie switches stylistically from that like Hitchcock rear window style it was doing to um, like an old time, like silent error horror film. It looks a lot like Todd Browning's freaks uh, for the hypnosis sequence. And in those hospital flashbacks, she discovers the truth, which is that the evil twin, I believe died when they were separated because they used to be conjoined twins. And in the separation, the evil twin died and out of guilt, the good twin um, sort of slips into the evil twins personality sometimes. So they're one in the same, the, uh, the good twin, the entire film has been the only one that's alive. It's just every now and then she has like a split personality where she becomes evil and stabs her one night stands to death uh, and ha- has to have the, the mad scientist ex-husband character help clean her up her mistakes. And the reason I think this might be De Palma's like best stuff is like, it has all of the stuff you want from him. Like the Hitchcock, homages the split screen work is insanely intricate for a movie on this budget level uh that that sequence you were describing the thing that's like so amazing about it is like you do see those two perspectives and then they crisscross like the characters yeah cross channels and then are followed on the other screen than where they were um so like just the choreography of those two shots being staged at the exact same time is just like masterful but it's coming from this like young upstart director who like hasn't really controlled his id like all of his peeping tom obsessions and like his open jawed stares at like the surgery scars and like the mental illness exploitation stuff like this is just like i was saying about with madhouse just like unregulated id in every direction it makes almost just about as much sense as madhouse does but like is just so well crafted that you can't like deny it. And yeah, it's just a really great exploitation picture and just feels like pure De Palma before he like knew better to like, kind of like soften his impulses with like good taste and morals. But see, I don't know about that. Like he had bad taste for a while. I mean, if you watch like body double or I just watched femme fatale from the two thousands and he was still trashy as ever in that. Yeah. I still watch like I watched (laughs) dress to kill a few weeks ago, yeah. like super trash. Like he never really lost that sense. But I think like I was saying earlier with this being his first foray into this genre, 
I mean, you could tell he's just beaming with the Hitchcock influence is so on the nose. It's like, obviously, he's a huge fan of of Hitchcock, and he's literally stealing shots and ideas. But there is something about this that feels totally untethered and not subtle in a way that, you know, I think later on he delved into the same themes without being so... I don't know, on the nose, I guess. It's like it's an actual Grindhouse movie and not like a, you know, studio picture borrowing Grindhouse tropes. You know, like it actually feels like dangerous and grimy and like upsetting in a way that like, like with Madhouse, just like no quality control, making sure everything's (laughs) like coloring within the lines. Like it actually like is messy and exploitative and still like a really undeniably great piece of art in, in its own right. Yeah. It's a great film. Um, Margot Kidder, like when she like becomes her sister, like what whatever the fuck happens to her face is terrifying. Like it looks like she was like dipped in wax almost because she's like sweating so much, <laughs> and like her just face like turns into something like demonic. And I found that to be very haunting, and I was into it. And here we are back at the birthday thing. <laughs> we have a very tragic birthday cake in this film. That cake looks so good. Like <laughs> it was such a wholesome birthday cake and like it looks so delicious. And I thought about it like through all like the murderous kind of gross stuff because <laughs> it looks so good. And it, the only thing they got to eat it was a cop's shoe. What a waste. I know, and that that poor woman, like whenever she went to the um, like the baker store to kind of when she was like doing her investigating the journalist, and she was like, you know, it looks like a child's handwriting on the cake. <laughs> the lady's like, oh, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. Speaking of the the journalists, I think one thing that does bother me about some De Palma flicks is that I get the sense he is kind of like has weird ideas about women. I don't know what his deal is, but like a lot of times in his film, like when I watch dress to kill, it literally starts with gawking over this woman's body in the shower. That's how the film starts. And like body double and some other things feels a little icky and exploitative. Maybe that's the point. Cause I know he's into the idea of voyeurism and all that stuff. But in this film, watching it again like i thought it was like pretty kind of a feminist picture like pretty progressive in the sense that like especially with this reporter character she's kind of getting bombarded on all sides by pressure from like the policemen who who hate her because she's a good reporter and exposes them for their bullshit you have her mother who's telling her oh why are you doing this you should be getting married and having kids Oh, Lord, that mother. And then eventually, like, at the end, she is brainwashed by this man to say the things that he wants her to say. And, like, I never really picked up on that watching it the first time, but I thought that was, like, interesting for a De Palma film to bring up those ideas. Especially when it starts off with a Peeping Tom TV show joke. Like, uh, (laughs) for it to be one of his least leering uh, films. I mean, there's there's a little bit of leering, but it's not quite as uh, wagging its tongue like a cartoon wolf. Like most of the leering is the journalist watching the murder through a window um, and not watching sex through a window. Yeah, and it seemed to have something genuine to say about how 
women are just like they're not believed or they're like told what to think and I don't know. I, I thought that was an interesting subtext to the film that I hadn't really picked up on before. Something I didn't think about before was like, you know, the first couple times you watch this, those like split screens are like really cool. And <laughs> you just kind of uh-huh. get lost in like the technical skill of that. Um, I didn't really think about why he would use that. And it's so obvious. Uh, it's just like, Oh yeah, it's a movie about twins. So he has like these like twin screens that he's like splitting the, uh, the screen into like two parts. So like thematically, it's not like completely a waste. Like it, there, there is a reason to do that besides, you know, that Hitchcock tension of like, we know the bodies in the couch, but the cops don't. But just think about like, you've seen so many movies, a criminal is trying to cover up their crime and we have a scene of them cleaning the blood off the floor and, but it like lacks tension because we don't get the other perspective of the person that could walk in and catch them in the act of cleaning up. And like by adding that other perspective in this and then the moments where, you know, they're on the cusp of like catching them, but they're distracted by inane bullshit or the cops like not taking her seriously and they're wasting time. It adds like so much more tension to the scene. Like that's what a split screen shot should do. It's not just to show off like, Technically, I can pull this off. It's like, no, this is adding tension to the scene, and it totally makes sense. And then, like you said, Brandon, it like makes sense also with the the twin theme as well. So I I don't know. Like he's done that shot quite a few times throughout his career, but I think this is maybe the best version of that that I've seen. Also worth noting, it's really funny. Cause like, uh, it's not like they're expertly cleaning up the blood and like the body as no. the cops are on their way. They keep fucking up and like slipping in the blood and falling down and like <laughs> getting uh, evidence everywhere and they still get away with it. But that's the thing. If the cops would have just taken the reporter seriously, well, we wouldn't have had a movie. They would have caught them. But just seeing these bumbling <laughs> cops, like, dude, just like fucking go up to the apartment, like knock on the door. So what useless. are you doing? Did y'all know that, like, the twins in this movie I, I were, like, loosely based on, like, a real set of conjoined twins? I did not. Yeah, it was, like, these Soviet twins. Their names were, like, Masha and Dasha. And, like, they, like, died, like, in the early 2000s, which kind of, like, kind of blew me away. Like, they're the oldest set of, like, conjoined twins. Hmm. And, like, it's super creepy. Like, one of them died and, like the other twin was still alive oh, and no. like as like all the toxins from like her dead body like reached the other oh. twin's blood system she died isn't that crazy i was That's like so thinking sad. of sorry to put a damp <laughs> but i was like thinking about that i'm like what happens when like conjoined twins like what happens when, like one dies i don't know i was thinking about it like while i was watching sisters so i thought it was like bizarre that like the twins you know what i mean it was kind of based off of. I watched a, a documentary one time about the twin, the conjoined twins from Freaks. Oh, they were in the they, they had like a you know a career outside of that movie as like traveling performers, and they were in a movie called Chained for Life or something like that. But there's also a documentary called Bound by Flesh about them, um, and the their story is equally sad. And yeah, oh. I think this movie is kind of riffing on that iconography 
anyway. Yeah. Like, I think it's kind of using Todd Browning's movie as like a jumping point, especially in that hypnosis scene. So yeah, it's kind of sad to know, like as fun as all these exploitation movies are, that like real people's lives are kind of like used for our entertainment. There's a sad reality out but there. But to that point, like it's always like a negative, like having a twin in every film I've seen so far, I guess with the exception of twins with Arnold and Danny <laughs> DeVito, like, but anyway, the idea of twins kind of, it seems like freaks people out in general and is seen as like a negative. So I don't know. Maybe that's why all these movies tend to be pretty dark and screwed well, up. It's like, if you're going to make a movie about twins, then the first go-to would be like, what's the conflict? I don't know. I could see like how immediately you would go to like, well, being a twin is the conflict and here's why. And I think all these movies, maybe with the exception of um, dead ringer has like an obsession with like how off putting it is to other people that twins exist and like how (laughs) titillating it is sexually as well. Like I think these movies tap into like the psychosexual dynamic there. And I don't know, it's not the best, most moral impulse, but uh, it does make for some really fun exploitation movies. Yes, it does. I wish there was like a few more movies about conjoined twins. I guess it's harder to pull off technically. Most of them, it's it's like they're, you know, kind of separate. You know, I mean, there's Freaks, which, uh, and then I I can think of like Basket Case, but they've been separated. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And there's like multiple basket case movies. The movie Chained for Life uh, from the 50s um, has the tw- the sisters from uh, Freaks in it. And they're like on trial for murder. Uh, oh. So like one of them committed a crime and the other one, you know, would have to be punished at the same time as her. It's interesting. It's not, it's not like a great movie, but it's an interesting like kind of novelty. And, you know, they're actual real life conjoined twins. So you're saying we should do a conjoined twin episode next. <laughs> I'm sure we would be very tasteful and, you know, understanding and not sensationalize <laughs> this no, medical condition. No. <laughs> it would be a tough needle to thread, but um, we didn't really try today. So why would we try then? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I learned anything really about what it might be like to have a twin from watching these movies. I can almost guarantee you did not. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it, it would be such a creepy thing to like have someone that looks just like you and has your same DNA. Right. I think if any of these movies actually, you know, prod at those philosophical psychological dynamics, it is the Cronenberg movie. It is. It, that one totally. is like, but you know, we also found that one the least um, entertaining and compelling. So it says more about what we were looking for out of these movies than like what they gave to us. I mean, I think the truth is like a lot of twins are like just fine and they love their twin and they have a unique bond and it's very special. Yeah. But when movies get a hold of that idea, it turns into something very weird and nasty. And I mean, there has to be like true, like real life evil twin stories. Are there? I mean, I've, I don't even know if I know a, a set of twins. I do. I mean, all the twins that I know, like, love each other and have great lives. Well, there you go. Yeah. But no one wants to see a movie about that. Well, also, like, the evil twin trope is less about twins than it is about, you know, anyone. Like, how you can be both a good person and a, like, completely fucked up pure id 
person as well and like from like a flip of the switch uh it's just like the twins allow you to like externalize that and separate that into two different people so it's really about like individuality it's not none of these movies are really about twins per se i mean it's about the individual spirit or and Madhouse isn't really about twins at all because those sisters do not look anything alike. No. That's- <laughs> <laughs> what is Madhouse about is like the big question. <laughs> it's about um, how easily trained and loyal Rottweilers are. If you go to the hospital for 20 years, they will wait for you. And um, <laughs> they, will do anything they will still for be alive you. and ready to go when you get out. <laughs> the everlasting dog. <laughs> Well, this felt like a very Britney episode, I think. <laughs> like all, all the movies. I, I just think in general, like yeah. every one of these, I was like, I could see Britney enjoying this. I was. I mean, everyone, I'm just like, you know, I would get my pajamas on and I put it on before I go to bed, just smiling and eating like junk food. <laughs> Loving my life. <laughs> I'd recommend all of these uh, for that exact experience. Eat some junk food, watch something really trashy. Yeah. And they're all they're all fun to watch. Watch, and you've got four deliciously trashy movies to pick from with evil twins that we liked. <laughs> well, uh, recently I was on um, our friend's podcast. We love to watch again, and I talked about Brigsby Bear. Oh god, which is a movie I hadn't seen in a while, and it still holds up. And it's actually like even more poignant right now in the middle of a pandemic where you're not allowed to see people and. You're alone in your home watching obscure pop media. So uh, go over to We Love to Watch This Feed and check out that episode if you want to hear more Brixby Bear thoughts. And like I said at the top of this episode, um, we will be back next week to talk about Lucky, which just dropped on Shudder. And as a movie that, like sisters, we kind of have to spoil to get into what it does that's interesting. So watch the movie before we talk about it. That's your homework assignment that I rarely (laughs) give out. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.